That's the sound of me making a delicious mojito with Liar's Spice Cane Spirit, fresh mint, simple sugar, lime, and club soda. When you take a smell of the Spice Cane Spirit by itself, you'll get notes of caramel, molasses, and toasted nuts. And when you taste it, you'll get a nice finish of spiced vanilla. What's so amazing about Liars and all their spirits is that they have a similar taste to their alcohol counterparts, with some tasting even better. And since they offer 15 different types of spirits, you have the freedom to make pretty much any non-alcoholic cocktail you want. Hi everyone, I'm Marco Salazar and welcome to the For All Drinks podcast, your place for discovering delicious non-alcoholic beer, wine, spirits, mocktails, and more for leading a fun, healthy, and inclusive lifestyle. On today's episode, I talk with Mark Livings, co-founder and CEO of Liar Spirit Company. You'll learn how Mark took his extensive background in marketing and used it to create a wide range of award-winning non-alcoholic spirits. You don't want to miss out on how Mark and his team have built the foundation for delicious non-alcoholic cocktails and are helping to drive the overall growth of the non-alcoholic beverage industry. Thanks for joining us today. I first met Mark at an event hosted by Liars in Brooklyn, and as soon as we were introduced, Mark asked me what my favorite drink was. I said a Negroni, and he quickly went over to the bar and personally made one for me. Now, I've tasted a lot of non-alcoholic cocktails, and most of them are so-so or tend to be overly sweet. But when I took a sip of the Negroni Mark made me, I was completely shocked by how great it tasted. My first thought was, I could drink these all day. I went on to try five different classic cocktails that night, all of them delicious and perfect substitutes for their alcohol counterparts. And as a plus, I knew I wasn't going to have a hangover in the morning. In this episode, Mark and I cover a wide range of topics, from how to make great non-alcoholic cocktails, to the science behind producing spirits that have complexity to them, to the impact Liars is having on ensuring people have access to tasty non-alcoholic beverages, as well as how Liars is taking steps to limit its carbon footprint as it grows. So here he is, Mark Livings from Liars. Hey Mark, welcome to the For All Drinks podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on, Marcus. The last time we saw each other, it was the first time we met last year at a get-together you had when visiting the U.S. And I'll be honest, I had not tried Liars before. So at the event, you asked me what was one of my favorite drinks, and I shared it was the Negroni. So you actually made me one, and I was blown away by the taste of the Negroni made by Liars. The flavor profile, the depth and the complexity, and... I'm just super excited to chat with you about this amazing set of beverages that you've created. I guess we'll just start off by where'd the idea for Liars come from? Yeah, it's an interesting one. My background's a little unorthodox. We find a lot of people that are career mixologists or people that are from the culinary arts like chefs or people who've had a lifelong passion for beverages finding their way into this market. I came at it from a really different angle. My background is in marketing. So for the last close to 15 years, I've either worked for or provided marketing services to multinational consumer goods companies. So Nestle, Pepsi, Coca-Cola, Procter & Gamble, you name it, those were my clients. And one of the things that I realized in servicing them for so many years was that they were, whilst they were great at producing things at massive scale, very safely and keeping items on supermarket shelves, 
they were particularly slow when it came to getting highly innovative new categories to market. I had a bit of a hypothesis that a small entrepreneurial band of people could identify a quickly emergent consumer trend and throw a brand in front of it. And hopefully if the wave took off, it would carry that idea and that brand into shore and some success. So for us, we began this project as one, it was a commercial opportunity that we saw. We saw that the world was going in this direction and we really wanted to be part of it. And two, getting the products. And thank you for your lovely description at the beginning and how much you enjoyed your Negroni, which was contained three of our products. It became a project which became over time, an obsession. And we had to not only use all of our existing marketing and advertising now to build a compelling brand, but we needed to acquire a whole new skill set around constructing beverages, balancing flavors, sources of origin, of course, beverage science and food safety. It wasn't a quick process. It took us about three years, but sorry, that's a long way of answering your very simple question in that one, we saw a commercial opportunity And then it became such an amazing exercise of working out what we could do with beverages in a bottle that it became a a really beautiful, interesting, fun project. And yeah, we're really happy with where we've landed. Yeah. And I think that background really sets the foundation for what's unique about Liars, which is it's a lot of products that have come onto the market. It's usually one or two particular types of products that are trying to replace or be something different, but maybe possibly replace a spirit where you all have come out with this amazing range of products. And can you share a little bit about why you decided to have that full range? For sure. It's really important to note that when we started this project, there wasn't a category. We didn't have line of sight to any of our competitors. We thought we were the first people in the world working on this. And there's a lovely effect and it's observed in Silicon Valley style startups. And I forget the name of the effect, but it's been observed and written about in academic institutions that a lot of people have the same idea in different parts of the world at the same time. And then there's a race to commercialize this idea. And for the most part, a lot of people abandon the idea and go, oh, that's a good idea. I might get to that one day. And others lean into it. So we were part of that sort of first wave, I think, of people that started working on building products for this category. Now, our big hypothesis that we bought when we looked at this opportunity is we thought that wouldn't it be great if people could drink spirits that they knew and loved and simply choose to have it with or without alcohol. And for us, we had a few other criteria that we needed to fulfill in order for the what we knew the product to be complete. We decided it needed to taste like the original. So first and foremost, we wanted to pay homage to the original flavors that are tested by, in the case of some spirits, multiple centuries of time and people enjoying them. The second thing is we wanted to make it easy or Again, to borrow from the software industry, we wanted to make it frictionless. We wanted to allow people to slide out of the Negroni, like you said, that you might enjoy when you are enjoying alcohol, and then slide out of the alcohol-containing category and into something that delivers you just as much flavor. So we wanted to make sure that there was a continuity in flavor across the range. And thirdly, we wanted to make it easy for both bartenders in a professional context as well as consumers at home. So we wanted to ensure that the products could be used exactly like their alcoholic brothers and sisters. So we wanted to make sure that the same dosage, the same shot size would deliver the same flavor experience and intensity. 
So that was the sort of high watermark for us in terms of this is the standard that the spirits all need to meet. And then what we did is we looked at the world's 50 most popular cocktails and we said, how do we then deliver the building blocks to replace the entire back bar? So you can make the most popular cocktails in the world in a non-alcoholic format. And using the 13 variants that Liars has available now, we're able to replicate 42 of the world's top 50 cocktails and nine out of the world's top 10 simple mixed alcoholic beverages in a completely non-alcoholic format. I think one of the things that's really interesting is how do you develop that from an actual product standpoint? What was that process of experimenting and actually coming up with the formulas? Yeah, look, that's probably one of the most interesting things about the journey that we decided to take. And you and I were having a little bit of a chat before the show about why America's slightly behind the United Kingdom in terms of maturity of this category. So let's talk about how this category started. And the easiest way to make a non-alcoholic spirit is to take a distilled spirit and then you de-alcoholize it. So using either heat, alcohol evaporates off the liquid at a lower point than water does, so you can evaporate off the alcohol. Or using two more sophisticated processes, one is called reverse osmosis and one uses a pneumatic ram and a membrane to basically juice the alcohol out of the existing liquid just like you'd juice a lime, a lemon or an orange. So the easiest thing to do is to make an existing spirit like a gin, for example, and then de-alcoholize it. Now, a gin or a vodka are the cheapest alcohol-containing spirits to make because they don't need barrel aging. And that's why we saw at the beginning of this category coming to life, everything on the market was gin or gin styled or gin adjacent, as we call it. And they were all using that production method. They were using distillation, either distilling it with ethanol and dealcoholizing, or they were replacing the ethanol and they were using simple water vapor. Now, the problem with those two methods, and we identified this really early on, if you use water vapor to distill, you don't get the firepower that you do when you use ethanol in distillation. And that's simply because water is not as good a solvent as alcohol is. So it doesn't suck out those lovely botanicals or those flavors that you're looking to be delivered into your beverage as well as ethanol does. So you end up with a watery, insipid beverage that's low on sort of firepower. Then if you start with an alcohol product and you remove the alcohol, because ethanol is such an amazing solvent, you also take out a lot of the flavor. So you end up with exactly the same problem. You end up with an insipid, watery beverage that's somewhat reminiscent of the original alcohol-containing spirit that you made in the first place. So we had a look at this and we thought, that's not the process for us. We said, let's take a food science approach. Let's have a look at what's going on in a glass of whiskey or in a bottle of vermouth at the molecular level. So we did that. We worked with one of the world's leading beverage technology companies. It's a company I've worked in very close proximity to for a number of years. And we worked with them on this challenge. And we're like, what makes a vermouth a vermouth? What makes a bourbon a bourbon? What makes a gin a gin? And we wanted to say, look, let's get those same molecules, those same compounds and let's get it into a water base and let's get it in the concentrations that we need to deliver a really compelling flavor profile. And then by using this approach, it also opened up the possibilities of delivering barrel aging flavors as well. And it also opened up possibilities of delivering 
other sorts of flavors that aren't soluble in water or alcohol. So fat soluble flavors, things like vanillas and chocolates and stuff like that, we could integrate into our beverages using a technique called nanoemulsion, which is basically super microscopic particles of perfume or flavor floating around in super microscopic particles of fat within a water-based beverage, which is really cool stuff. Combining all those things, we isolated the essences of fruits like oranges and lemons and juniper berry and so on. We then used essences, which are fat-soluble things, and we also used distillates, which are things extracted by ethanol, and they're typically things with much harder cellular structures. So imagine the flavor of cinnamon. Because that comes from a bark of a tree, it's got a really tough cellular lining, so you often need ethanol to get at that flavor. So we can extract it using ethanol, and then we can dealkoholize the distillate and then reintegrate it into our beverage balance those essences, extracts, and distillates, and then complete the product. It was a very long process, and we set ourselves a few rules along the way. First and foremost, we wanted our products to be 100% vegan, so we only ever used plant-derived. We wanted them to be entirely natural, and we can't get an entirely natural product, but it's as natural as possible, and I'm happy to unpack that for you and your listeners in a bit. But all of the flavors throughout the Liars range are completely natural. So those are the barriers that we operated within. And yeah, look, the results speak for themselves and you've tasted them. And it's probably worth noting those awards that we've picked up across the last few months. We're now the world's most awarded range of non-alcoholic spirits. Even today, we're just off embargo. We just picked up 11 medals at the London International Spirits Show. And I know you're US-based, so we also picked up 11 medals at the San Francisco International Spirits Expo and 10 medals at the San Diego International Spirits Expo. We're really proud of the results we got using our science-based process rather than our traditional romantic process. I love that you got into the science of it. I'm smiling just because this is the thing that I'm really interested in. And I know a lot of people in our audience are. And you reminded me of a couple things. The first is that I have tried a number of those types of gin products that are using that other process. And what I ended up doing to make it better is I would add junipers. I would add other flavors to try to mimic it. So it's really amazing to see and hear that process. I think the second thing that's important is that this non-alcoholic category, a lot of people equate alcohol with value and price. Yeah. And I don't think they understand, especially with a product like Liars, I could see that if they're having a disappointing gin-like type non-alcoholic beverage, but I think you diving into that science helps people recognize the thought and process and effort and the science behind it. And that's what leads to the higher price point. Indeed. And it's really important, Marcus, that we all recognize that it's really early days as well. Everyone in the industry, including people like us, which are in a volume leadership position, we're still producing on a scale that is probably as small or smaller than a craft distillery is. And what you pay for a craft gin or a craft vodka or a craft bourbon, we've got as high production costs as well as we need to recuperate our research and development costs. As the category matures over time and we start to get some larger volumes, I'd expect that we might be able to deliver some more value to the consumer. But it's interesting that you note that some people conflate the alcohol content and value. And we get that from time to time. Of the people that we don't get it from, consumers, people who love our product, 
are happy to pay the price and don't really see how there's a difference between something that contains alcohol and doesn't. Where we do hear that from, however, is people in the industry. So people that are trade buyers from major retailers and the like. And they're simply, they're very one-eyed about seeing the fact that it doesn't contain alcohol, therefore it's not taxed like alcohol, but they're turning a blind eye to the fact that it's still produced at a very small scale. And these are very expensive products to produce that are hugely difficult to get right in the kitchen before they make it anywhere near market as well. Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic. Yeah, and I think you point out something interesting about people in the industry. When I have a really good friend who's a bartender and also owns a number of bars, and we've had this discussion because he doesn't drink alcohol. Yeah. But he's been disappointed in the ones in the U.S. that he's tasted because take is why would I just want to add flavored water to soda water or something like that? And I think what Liars is doing is you have the opportunity to provide a non-alcoholic option to the entire back bar. And I think that's what's really unique about what Liars is doing. Yeah. And look, that's a really great point as well. And let's touch on what I mentioned before about why we think the category is not as mature in the U.S., One of the things really interesting is going all the way back to those first comments that I made, that process where you make a neutral colored spirit, so a vodka or a gin at the beginning, because it's the cheapest thing to do, those were the first products to market. Now, if you look at the United Kingdom and you look at how much those people love gin, if you look at the traditional spirits category, gin is over 30% of their entire mix of spirits that they drink. And if we take a little hop, skip and a jump over the Atlantic and land, you know, on your fair shores, gin is just over 5%. So the flavor preferences of the US consumer are vastly different to the UK consumer where this category has really taken off and is approaching a point of maturity. The US is a dark spirit market. You love your bourbons, you love your rums, and you love your vodkas. Now, vodka, I'm convinced, cannot be produced in a non-alcoholic format in a convincing way, and it's not something that we're chasing as a brand. But bourbons and rums, we have achieved that, and we're really proud of our recipes. And we now have the data, having been on sale in the US since February, via direct-to-consumer and, of course, since November through traditional retailers such as BevMo, we're now seeing that people are consuming the non-alcoholic spirits category in the same shape that they would have consumed the traditional spirits category. So in the UK, we over-index our gins and our Italian bitters, like our homages to Campari and Aperol. And in the United States, we're over-indexing our bourbons and our rums and our vermouths, which go into the sorts of cocktails that Americans love. So Negronis, Boulevardiers and Manhattans. Yeah, it's really interesting that we are now starting to see global flavor preferences because of our range, and we can see which of our variants is most popular market by market. Oh, wow. That's really interesting to hear about the difference between the different markets. And one of the things that I'd love for you to get back to, which you shared is, can you talk a little bit about the natural ingredients and the sustainability of it? Because I know there's a lot that's gone into the making of liars as a result of that. For sure. It's very easy to synthesize an ingredient. And if you really want to nerd out, we can. But okay, let's nerd out. So the vast majority of flavors that you'll find in a beverage are carbon chemistry based. They're all carbon based cells. And when you get a chain of carbon atoms, sometimes they form a benzene ring, which is a ring of six carbon atoms all joined together. 
And then if you attach a few more atoms to that, you'll get something that's called an ester. And an ester is what makes an orange an orange, a lemon a lemon, grape a grape, and so on and so on. So it's possible to synthesize esters in the lab. Now, you can do that by using ingredients that don't sound particularly nice at all. So there's something called coal tar, which is a petroleum manufacturing byproduct, and it's really carbon rich. So you can then muck around with it using synthesis and create the same thing as you would extract naturally from its original source. We do not do that. We put anything that was artificial to the side and said, no, it's really important that we work with only natural ingredients. For us to get an orange ester, as an example, we have to get it from the orange itself. And the way we do that is there's a whole different number of extraction methods, maceration, extraction, distillation, and so on. In order to isolate those compounds, and then you concentrate those compounds. So you remove as many of the other adjacent molecules and you try and get as pure a sample of pure naturally derived orange esters in the case of orange as possible. And then you've got one ingredient. And for example, our Rosso vermouth has 36 different ingredients in order to create a convincing sweet vermouth. And not everything, not every ingredient grows in the same geography. You can't get pepperberries from anywhere that's particularly hot. You can't get citrus from places that are too hot or too cold. Uh, you can't get tropical fruit flavors from places that are too cold. And you can't get certain types of barks that deliver the flavor profiles we're looking for in a different latitude. So Lyers actually has, across the range, we utilize natural ingredients from over 39 different countries of origin. So it's a pretty extraordinary feat to, one, bring those ingredients into a single range of beverages, and two, do it in an all-natural way. And then the last part is getting the right flavor. I remember when we were looking at vanillas, which is a key sort of flavor note in a number of our beverages. It's in our amaretto. There's a hint of it in our coffee. It's in our American malt, which is our homage to bourbon. And it's in quite a lot of our rums, particularly the spiced rum. When we were looking at this, we had a library of over 230 different naturally derived vanilla extracts to work with. So you get this incredible paralysis about what is the type of vanilla that I'm looking for. And based on where it comes from in the world, based at the time of year that it was harvested, based on the clonal variant of the plant itself, you get a whole different bunch of vanillas that only when you isolate them significantly do you realise that, oh, this vanilla is quite smoky. This vanilla has like a custard sweetness to it. This vanilla is really zingy and citrusy. We had to look at all of those ingredients across all of those different countries of origin, across all the different varietals to find the right ones. And then we needed to balance them as well. Yeah, it was a hell of a feat, but I'm pleased to say we did it in an all-natural way. The second question you ask is around sustainability as well. I'm really proud. We have to be, I am convinced of this, we are easily the lowest carbon footprint non-alcoholic spirit in the world. And I'll explain why. Because of our process, because we're rebuilding the brand at the molecular level, we can do that and concentrate those molecules and then move them into market. So rather than filling glass bottles up with primarily 95% water, 
then filling entire sea containers up and moving them across oceans and continents in order to sell this in another market, we can move a fairly small amount of the compounds and we can manufacture in market closer to where people are consuming it, closer to the major retailer distribution centres. So our food miles, to borrow a very commonly used term, enormously lower than almost the entirety of the competitor set, including those that are perceived to be the market leaders at the moment. So we're very proud of that statistic and it's really important to our brand in an ongoing fashion. Thanks so much for listening to this interview and I wanted to pause for a little bit to let you know about one of our amazing sponsors. One, I appreciate you sharing all that, the geekiness, because I love it. I know there's a lot of people that are interested in that. Two, the sustainability pieces, because I think people continually want to vote with their dollars and align themselves with brands that are not only producing good products, but also making the world a better place. So I appreciate that you've gone to that much thought about all this. And this segues perfectly to the next question I was going to ask, which I think you all have really amazing branding. You've done a really, really good job of having each of the individual beverages have their own unique look and feel. So what was that process of coming up with the Liars brand and executing and launching the brand? You may recall right at the beginning of this interview, I talked about my background being marketing. Having the ability to have an agency that you've founded close to 10 years ago and you're working with amazing people at the top of their game, we built the brand in-house using the agency. The agency's called the Kinetic Agency in Sydney, if anyone's interested. We went through quite a few variations of the brand at first and they weren't particularly resonant. But Liars came out, it was probably a third, go back to the beginning, this isn't quite right, let's get this underway. And one of the creatives in the team identified the Australian Liarbird. And what's really interesting about the Liarbird is it's nature's greatest mimic. It's an animal that's completely unique in the world in that it can replicate the bird song of any other bird that it hears. It's so good, in fact, it can replicate artificial man-made sounds such as a chainsaw or a mobile phone or something along the likes of that as well. For a brand that was based on paying homage to originals or mimicry, we thought, what a wonderful moniker for the brand. So we found our brand mark in Liars, and from there we created our beautiful little icon, which is a lyre bird in a top hat. And Liarbird's part of the peacock family, so it's got this beautiful tail plumage as well. It's a gorgeous Australian bird. You can probably hear in my accent I'm an Australian founder as well. So there was a lovely symmetry there. And we thought, look, let's continue the animal thematic through the brand. So what we know about all of the traditional spirits that we're paying homage to is they all have a home, they all have a providence, they all have a point of origin that's particularly well-known. So, for example, our Italian orange or our Italian spritz, which are homages to Campari or Aperol, we use Italian creatures on the label. So we have a coniglio or a rabbit on our homage to Aperol, the Italian spritz, and we have a Roman wolf, which is an homage to Campari on that label as well. And... Again, jumping over the Atlantic, we've got a North American black bear on our homage to bourbon, and we've got a London pigeon, with apologies to my British friends, for our homage to gin, which is our dry London spirit. So that's how the architecture of the brand comes together, and we had all these lovely visible assets, but the one thing that I loved most of all was when we shortened the word liarbird, we ended up with liars. And 
that works in two ways. One, it pays homage to the lyrebird. But two, it's also a beautiful bar call where if someone's asking for their favourite drink, and in your case, Marcus, that's a Negroni, we loved the idea that someone could walk up to a bar and say, hey, bartender, I'd like a Negroni, please, but make it a liars. And it's working phonetically really beautifully. Clearly, it sounds like you've got a little bit of a white lie. And the beauty of our range is that no one wants to know that you're drinking in a non-alcoholic fashion and you get to have a cheeky little secret between you and the bartender. They just know that you've asked for a drink that you love and by attaching the prefix or the suffix of liars, they know to make it in a non-alcoholic format. So that's how the brand came together. And you touched on something hugely important that what Liars is doing, not only in the beverage space, but from a social element as well, which is you're making social drinking for everyone, meaning that no one needs to know whether you're drinking alcohol or not, because you're having your hands a delicious beverage, independent if it has alcohol or not. So can you talk about a little bit about how that fits into Liars and from an inclusion standpoint? Oh, for sure. And look, we learned so much about how people approach this category. And there's a whole number of reasons. There's people that don't drink alcohol for medical reasons or for physiological reasons. Some people are allergic. Some people react really badly, but they still want to be part of the fun. There's people who don't approach the alcohol category for cultural or religious reasons as well. With respect to them, they can't join in the fun of a sophisticated beautifully complex beverage flavor like a spirit or indeed a non-alcoholic spirit would provide. Then we've got people who are pregnant and there's always that difficult first trimester where you do or you don't tell people that you are pregnant and particularly at work events where there's beverages often demarcate the end of the work week and the weekend and you're a person that's been renowned to be drinking uh, gin and tonics and then all of a sudden you're on Diet Coke, people start going, are you? And people may want to be avoiding those conversations. And then again, we move up. There's the people who don't drink simply because they don't like it and they don't want the negative health effects associated with it. But they also don't want the social exclusion piece attached to it as well. So one of the things that we discovered is that people really felt uneasy in a context where everyone else was drinking alcohol, but for whatever their reason, they choose not to. So there was a very high degree of social anxiety, in the West at least, that we discovered. And what caused it is if you're, you'll still have a beverage in hand, but it will look different from everyone else's. So you have a physical artifact that you're holding that tells everybody else in the room that you're not part of the tribe. You're not part of the group and you're doing something different. And we learned that people felt that anxiety quite acutely. And that's where Liars came in. One of the best things about our range of products is it delivers that inclusivity piece. It's not just about making a delicious beverage. We're giving often people an avoidance from anxiety as well. So that piece was a really delightful discovery on the way through. And I think the other thing that's so fascinating about since you all have such a wide range is it's applicable for everybody. Not everybody may want to drink a beer. Some people might enjoy gin or bourbon, but you have all these other different elements. And I'm looking at all the different types of, in terms of your range, and you definitely have the gin, the rum, et cetera, but you also have come up with really interesting flavors that mimic amaretto or triple sec. And when I've tasted those, 
those are some of the strongest and most complex flavors. So how have people responded to some of those ones that they wouldn't typically think about purchasing or putting in cocktails? Yeah, it's a good question. And look, those variants there that are a little more obscure, so the vermouths in particular, the dry vermouth and the Rosso vermouth, or what we call our uh, aperitif dry or aperitif Rosso, those are the salt and peppers of cocktail making. Every single bar in the world has them, but you very infrequently find them available in the home. So they're the sorts of varietals, the amaretto as well, and the triple sec, they're used extensively through very complicated cocktail making. But again, you don't find them in, in the home that much. We sell more of the ones that are simple to make mixed beverages from the rums, the bourbon, the gin, etc. And some of those liqueurs, some of those vermouths and the like, they really only sell to bars or people who have a high level of experience or sophistication in making cocktails at home. And I think that's one of the things about the podcast is I think we want people to be able to taste those and explore those and learn how to make those complex cocktails. Did you all launch with the whole range right off the bat or did you launch with a certain set of them? We did. We launched with 12. We've added the Italian Spritz, which is our homage to Aperol. That came slightly after launch. We didn't have it quite right. So we don't launch things until we're absolutely 100% happy with them. And we're still working on a number of additional variants that are really important to rounding out that whole back of bar, being able to create that in a non-alcoholic format, but they're not good enough yet. So we're just going to keep chipping away at them and working with them until appropriate for launch. It was a very ambitious thing to do. A lot of our industry peers beverage said that we were mad and that's a hugely complicated thing to do. And our response was, look, it's a new category and the old rules don't apply. So every new rules and we want to be the fastest growth. We want to be the biggest. We want to be the most popular. All those things that entrepreneurs aspire to be. And there's no room for naysayers. So we just went for it. And yeah, the results speak for themselves, I think. Absolutely. And you all... First started in Australia and then Europe and then now in the US. So I see you all, and probably in other countries, I see you all as one of the drivers in terms of expansion. Where do you see that growth happening kind of across the globe? It's a really interesting question. We took a very different approach, I think, to I think the majority of players in this category. So for us, we wanted to be global from day one. So whilst we launched Australia first, that's simply because that was the first country we could get manufactured product to because it was coming out of our factory in Melbourne where we were making it there. The US was hot on its heels and then we moved up into Asia, so Hong Kong and Singapore. We of course launched in the UK in July of last year as well and as of today we've just turned on 14 new European markets. That's an addressable population similar to in scale to the US, that's uh, 360 million consumers Next month, we're launching mainland China as well, which is an incredible undertaking to take not only a new beverage, but a whole new beverage category into mainland China. And before the end of the year, we'll be fulfilling cross-border ex-Singapore into more than 130 different countries that are in that long tail of countries that don't have a distributor in the ground. So if you're in Uzbekistan or Kenya or Colombia and you want to get your hands on our product, you should be able to before the end of the year via e-commerce. So we believe we're the most broadly distributed non-alcoholic spirit in the world at the moment. We certainly will be by the end of the year. 
but that's all because we wanted to be global from day one and that shaped our business strategy and our expansion strategy coming out of the blocks. Yeah, and I think one of the unique things about non-alcoholic beverages versus alcohol is you can ship the products. Consumers can purchase and you have an e-commerce business. And how are you seeing that balance between engaging consumers and consumers trying products that they may have not tried before and then also bars and restaurants investing in this when it comes to their bars? Again, another really good question. Let's go back to the alcohol category for something that's interesting from recent years. Have a look at Fireball, the cinnamon bourbon whiskey. On paper, that sounds awful. That sounds bloody terrible. But it went nuts. And the only way to do it and to convince people that it's something that's worth stocking is to make sure that they have that what we call a liquid on lips moment. They have to try the product. And for us, getting bartender advocacy is critical. I'm pleased to say we're in, I think now, over 10 of the world's top 50 cocktail bars, and we're looking to double that number in the next couple of months, and hopefully, you know, we'll have some porridge across the majority of them before the end of the year. But winning that bartender advocacy is really important, and then the consumer is willing to splash out on a product in a new category that they are interested in. But you need to lower the barrier to entry for them. What we've been doing with some very high levels of success is a much smaller range of bottles. We've got a 200ml bottle rather than the full 700ml size bottle that allows people to come into the range at an accessible price point, try the range and move into a larger pack format from that point onwards. And then, of course, through traditional retail, we're consistently sampling. I've done several of these sessions where we'll go down to a liquor store on a Saturday morning and we'll serve people espresso martinis for breakfast or things along those lines. It's really about, one, creating awareness that the category exists, and I think there's still really low salience. So that's a job as an industry that we need to do. And then two, for liars, we need to help people understand how great our product tastes and simply sampling products is the way forward in order to get that to happen. What does your day-to-day look like? What do you love most about working at Liars? Yeah, look, for me, pre-COVID and the world's really changing fundamentally on how business is done. I was on the road and I traveled 230 days of the last year across, I think it was 21 different countries from Saudi Arabia to Shanghai to New York City to Hamburg in Germany. You know, I think I touched over 100 cities in terms of one, profiling our distributors, two, setting up our marketing support structures, three, recruiting the team. There's now over 40 team members in the Liars business, and that should double before the end of the year as well. I miss the excitement of moving into those new markets and meeting those new people and helping them understand not only that this category is great, two, if they're in the trade, that There's a profit opportunity here because this is a range of drinks that people want and people no longer want Diet Coke or mineral water. They want something sophisticated and elegant in their hand or when they're out, it's a special occasion. Talking people through that opportunity, talking them through consumer behavior and showing them how it's relevant to market, that's all been, the, I guess, my favorite part of living that way. Post-COVID, I was in Australia for four months, locked into that country. I've only just gotten back to Europe now. I'm I'm on my fifth day back here. But that's fundamentally changed how our business has been structured. The good thing is we managed to build a really great spread of people in different geographies, and we were able to pivot and adapt the business 
around how people are now approaching this category in a post-pandemic world. So whilst it's been a really difficult and challenging and anxiety-provoking few months, we actually, as from a business perspective, we've come through it stronger than when we left it. Our business is ahead of our sales projections. Uh, e-commerce has taken over all of the other channels in terms of importance around the mix of revenue from the various channels. And it's really forged an amazing team dynamic where we're in this together. We need to get through this. It's been a difficult but very exciting period as well. So that's, again, a long answer to a simple question. No, I love it. I love it. Last question. Where do you see, now that you've launched, you're going global, where do you see yourselves in the next one to three years? Our Senior Vice President, Connor, for global business development. He's having a holiday at the moment. Hopefully he listens to this and shout out to Connor. But he's got a map of the world and whenever we sign a new distributor or secure a major retailer listing, he gets out a crayon and he colors the country in. So for us, look, it's our ambition. There was 35 countries that we identified that we wanted to have closed within the first 18 months of business and we're on track to do that. Then there's a very long tail of more interesting or more difficult regions. So Asia Minor, so places like India, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, the GCC, the United Arab Emirates, Oman, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, North Africa, of course, South America and parts of Southeast Asia where there is still a market for these products, but it's not as big or as easy to capture as the existing more traditional Western markets. So I'd say within three years, I'd like to think we're distributed broadly in over 100 plus different geographies. And for us, we're available in every bar in the world, providing people looking for a non-alcoholic alternative, a compelling and delicious alternative when they do go looking for it. So for me, that'd be the high watermark for our business. Amazing. Thank you so much, Mark, for sharing your insights, geeking out with us, as well as also just offering an amazing product range that allows people to experiment, explore, as well as feel included when they're out. But the other thing that I think is so hugely important is thanks for raising the standard for non-alcoholic beverages. I think that is one of the greatest accomplishments that I see that Liars has done because then now people have an understanding of what something non-alcoholic taste like and what something that tastes good in terms of a non-alcoholic beverage. So thank you so much. You're so welcome. And I guess as a closing point, I'm really excited to see what the world does with this range of spirits in hand. And it gives mixologists like your friend that's the bartender that doesn't drink, it gives them an enormous portfolio or if we're talking an analog with regards to paints and colors, it gives them a pretty incredible palette to take to market and you know deliver their own individual expressions of a sophisticated cocktail or a sophisticated beverage. So thank you so much for your very kind words and for having me on today as well. Thanks to businesses like Liars, consumers now have more options than ever for non-alcoholic beverages that are interesting, tasty, and complex. Liars is paving the way in the growing non-alcoholic beverage movement, and I can't wait to see what they come out with next. If you're subscribed to the show, thanks for being part of the For All Drinks community. I'd be super grateful if you can take a moment to leave me a rating if you enjoyed this episode and the podcast. If you're not a subscriber yet, be sure to subscribe to this and all the other episodes of the podcast to start discovering more delicious non-alcoholic drinks. Lastly, visit foralldrinks.com for show notes to this episode and sign up for our newsletter to get the latest non-alcoholic beverage news, special giveaways, discounts, and more. Here's to drinking healthy, inclusively, and different. See you all next week.